turn your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 23. We are in a series titled Pearls and Perils in the book of Proverbs, or Wonders and Warnings in the book of Wisdom, whichever you prefer. A little bit of information about the book of Proverbs. It is a compilation of sayings, statements, Proverbs by Solomon. Proverb is a statement that makes a comparison or summarizes a common experience. As we know, there are 31 chapters in this, uh, this book, 915 verses. There are many who choose to read one chapter a day. It's a, a great opportunity for us to be reminded of the wisdom and instruction God would have us as his children impart into our lives. And then we note uh, the theme of this book is the wisdom of God. The key verse is Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The entire book uh, gives us a great contrast between the path of the wise and the path of the foolish, the godly and the ungodly, the righteous and the unrighteous. This book is so important, even though it was written hundreds of years ago, addresses many issues relevant to us today. You know, a lot of people point to the Bible, they say it's old, it's old, outdated, archaic, it's no longer relevant for us, it no longer is applicable, we need a new message, we need new thoughts. It's amazing, though, when you read the Word of God, what we see in the the pages of Proverbs just jump out us and shout at us, present tense, right now, this is helpful for us today. And so the book of Proverbs is an amazing book in regard to the practical instruction God gives us. Solomon, as we know, was the author of over 3,000 Proverbs, and so this is just a small compilation of those. But uh, two important facts to remember as we study the book of Proverbs. Number one, nearly all the Proverbs are parallel statements. Two parts to nearly every proverb. When we find the word but in one of those verses, it usually indicates the second statement contrasts the first. In other words, a statement is made and then the opposite or a contrasting statement is made to show you the difference. When the word and is found in the verse, it indicates the second statement further develops or explains the first. So a statement is made and then a a follow-up statement is made to add to or strengthen or to additionally clarify that first statement. So that's one thing to keep in mind as we're reading the book of Proverbs. Secondly, we need to remember Proverbs are principles, not promises. If followed, these principles will usually bring about the desired result. But that is not a guarantee. And I've used this example before. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turneth away wrath. Most of the time that works. Somebody's angry, they're harsh. A kind word in response oftentimes has a calming effect on them. But not every time. You don't believe that? Just start talking to somebody about politics. <laughs> You'll find out kindness isn't really on, at the top of their list. You look at the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Compassionately, he dealt with people. And yes, even for a time in his ministry, he dealt compassionately with the Pharisees because they were lost just like anyone else. 
However, their hostility, their hatred, their rejection of him led them to respond differently the further he went along in his ministry. And no matter how kind and how compassionate he was to them, hatred just poured from their lips like poison from an ass fang. So understand, these are principles, not promises. We would like very much to see people respond to us in a way, in, in, in kind, as we, as we deal with them, but that doesn't always take place. Well, in this series, we have looked at the purpose of the book of Proverbs, the people of the book of Proverbs, the paths, the places, and the praise of the book of Proverbs. And now we are in the middle of a series within a series, if you will, because we're considering the pictures of the book of Proverbs. The word like is found nine times in Proverbs, and the word as is found over 90 times in the book of Proverbs. So like and as, similes, they help us to see God is giving us a picture. He's like the parables in the New Testament. God uses some sort of earthly picture or something we're able to understand to help us better comprehend a spiritual truth. And so that's what we see here in the book of Proverbs. So we've already looked at the illustration or the pictures of communication and confidence. Today we're going to consider the picture of conduct. And we'll look at three passages of Scripture. I don't know that we'll get to all three of these. But you have conduct in regard to self-indulgence in Proverbs 23.32, self-control in 25.28, and self-enrichment in 28 verse 3. So let's start out here. Proverbs chapter 23, and for the context, I'm going to read verses 29 through 35. Here we see our conduct and self-indulgence. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. And our text, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. This passage presents the longest and most articulate warning in the book of Proverbs against drunkenness. I don't know what you, each of your, what your particular view on this, my position on the, the use of alcoholic beverages, whether it's wine, beer, hard liquor, what, um, these uh, hard lemonades, hard cider, whatever you want to call it. Personally, I believe it is all off limits to a believer. I believe in total abstinence. I know some people will debate that and say, well, there's nothing wrong with an occasional drink or so on. My contention, my conviction, my belief is the Bible makes it clear we should have nothing to do with consuming alcoholic beverages. This passage begins with six questions in verse 1 which call attention to problems caused by lingering long over wine and mixed wine. And by the way, mixed wine 
was wine that had something added to it, whether it was herbs or some sort of spices or drugs, to strengthen it, to make it, to enhance its intoxicating characteristics. But the three areas that uh, this first verse addresses in those six questions, emotional problems, dealing with woe and sorrow, social problems, dealing with strife and complaints, and physical problems, dealing with sickness and bruises. Why is wine so appealing? Its color, its aroma stimulate the senses of sight, taste, and smell. And once our physical senses are stimulated, there's something about our environment, whatever we're we're confronted with, whatever we're exposed to, there's something that causes an attraction to that. However, many find themselves entrapped by this snare of the devil and end up becoming a slave to alcohol. Verse 32 makes it clear the result is that eventually, at the last, it is as devastating and painful as a snake bite. The ugly picture painted here by Solomon is intended to warn people against tampering with a vice that may destroy them. Now, I'm in no way suggesting, implying, saying that everyone that takes a drink of alcohol, whether it's wine or beer or liquor, I'm not saying they're going to become a drunk who's lost control of their lives. I am saying the potential is there. For every drunkard began with one drink. Nobody starts drinking thinking they're going to end up in a, in a gutter covered in their own vomit. Nobody starts drinking thinking their life is going to be destroyed because their liver has been pickled and they find themselves no longer able to enjoy the pleasant things of life because their body is ravaged by disease and organ failure. Nobody starts out drinking thinking that one day they're going to lose their family, their home, their job, their reputation because they become a drunk. But yet we see it time and time and time again. If they would only realize the afterwards of this vice, they would turn from it. But the sad truth is, and I include myself in this, the sad truth is, seldom do we look one inch beyond the present pleasure of a situation. 2 Thessalonians 2.12 warns us that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, there's pleasure in sin for a season, the scripture tells us. There's enjoyment in those things that prove to be painful in our lives. And for many, they don't look beyond today to see the possibility of tomorrow. Well, why does Solomon compare drink to a serpent? Notice verse 32. At the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Three things. Because number one, it's poisonous. Alcohol is primarily a brain poison. But there's not a tissue nor an organ in the body which is not injured by the consumption of alcohol. Number two, it's subtle. As a rule, people ease into drunkenness slowly and unconsciously. The drunkard is likely the last person to know of their condition. How many have had 
family members, friends, loved ones who were clueless to the fact. But everybody around them knew they were out of control as a drunkard given to drink. It's sad to see people that fall into that condition. The third reason it's like a serpent is because it's like the devil. In the scriptures, the serpent is the symbol of Satan. Drink like the devil leads people into all kinds of sin. And the connection between drink and self-indulgence is set forth in this passage. The first picture Solomon gives us in, this, in the context of our conduct as we're looking at today, our appetite is that self-indulgence brings about pain and heartache and sorrow. And by the way, it's not just in the area of alcohol, but it involves whatever we may ingest or inject or consume with our bodies. The Bible says what? Know ye not your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You're not your own You're bought with a price. Beloved, we belong to the Lord. When we got saved, the Holy Spirit of God took up His abode within us and we became a child of the King. At that moment, we were His and we were no longer our own. He purchased us with His shed blood and He has the right to lay claim to us as His servants, as His children, as His saints. And God expects us to live according to His precepts, His plans, His will, not our own. Therefore, self-indulgence, what I want, what I think, what I want for me, ought to be way down on the list in regard to what I am going to do in living for the Lord. God's plan, I believe, is for all who follow Him to abstain from not only wine and strong drink, but from anything that will be harmful to their physical condition. Personally, I believe that involves the use of tobacco. I believe it involves the use of illegal drugs. In fact, I believe it involves the use of legal narcotics that can be abused and taken to excess. It involves a lot of things. But you know, isn't it amazing? No matter how complete we make a list of vices today, something new comes along and somebody's got to give it a try. The fact is, anything that we ingest that is harmful to our bodies harms our testimony for the Lord and our relationship with Him. But along with the idea of alcohol, a number of years ago, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous once sent columnist Ann Landers the following note. He said, We drank for happiness and became unhappy. We drank for joy and became miserable. We drank for sociability and became argumentative. We drank for sophistication and became obnoxious. We drank for friendship and made enemies. We drank for sleep and awakened without rest. We drank for strength and felt weak. We drank medicinally and acquired health problems. We drank for relaxation and got the shakes. We drank for bravery and became afraid. We drank for confidence and became doubtful. We drank to make conversation easy and slurred our speech. We drank to forget and were ever haunted. We drank for freedom and became slaves. We drank to erase problems and saw them multiply. We drank to cope with life and invited death. That was written by somebody who had been caught in the throes of alcohol's trap. Well, you have the problem here. 
the picture of self-indulgence. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, if you would. Notice the second of these illustrations this morning. Not only do we see our conduct and self-indulgence, we see our conduct and self-control. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 8 tells us, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Here Solomon speaks of a person who is vulnerable to trouble because he or she lack self-control. It has been said, No man can be said to have attained complete rule over his own spirit who has not under his habitual control the tenor of his thoughts, the language of his lips, and the energy of his passion. Yes, the phrase rule over his own spirit speaks of being in control of thoughts, words, and deeds. The illustration here is conquerors, when they overcame a city, when they defeated the people of that city in battle, they would oftentimes break down the walls and burn the gates so as to remove the realm of security that people had because walls represented security to people in ancient times. Well, breaking down those walls would discourage the people. It would cause them to live in fear. And as a result, a conqueror would thus appear victorious, not just over the physical victory they had, but as well, the mental, the emotional side of it. You consider the case of uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8. Nehemiah received word concerning the condition of the city of Jerusalem. The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Anyone who lacks self-control, lacks the protection they need to keep them from not only doing stupid things or making mistakes or doing wrong, but as well it keeps them from being influenced by others. Our lack of self-control puts us in a position of defenselessness. Why? It's because this, de- this uh, behavior demonstrates one's lack of knowledge and in turn leads them to be susceptible to or dominated and controlled by others. Self-control. Self-control typifies the wise. A lack of self-control typifies the foolish. And by the way, that's what we see in this book, the contrast between the wise and the foolish. Proverbs 14, 29, He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. Proverbs 16, 32, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in until afterwards. It's been said it's better to not say anything and be thought of as a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Well, certainly a lack of self-control puts us in that position. So how do we combat that? Paul, 1 Corinthians 9.25 wrote, And every man that striveth for the mastery is what? Temperate in all things. Temperate. 
exercises self-control in everything. You understand we all have strengths and weaknesses. We need to not depend upon our strengths to overcome our weaknesses, but we need to recognize our weaknesses and shore up our defenses. If you have a problem with a particular area, whatever it might be, I would encourage you to find scripture that would help you to combat that temptation. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. Quote it through the day. Paul said, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. In Romans chapter 7, we're reminded by, uh, by Paul when he said, the good that I would, I do not. And the evil that I would not, that I do. You see, the problem for every one of us is we are prisoners in this body of clay, this tabernacle of flesh. Jesus warned, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so many times we give in to the desire of the flesh. We we give in to the wants of our own interests. And in this case, we think, say, or do something that is going to be harmful, not only to us, but to others. So how again do we fight against that? Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Wicked thoughts start jumping through our mind. Stop. Say, God, please forgive me. Lord, please forgive me. Cleanse me. Let me think about something else. Concentrate on something else. On what? Whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are just. Whatsoever things are pure. Whatsoever things are lovely. And all in that list, Paul says, think on these things. Think on things that are honorable to the Lord. It will help to govern our actions. Self-indulgence, self-control. Proverbs 28, verse 3. Self-enrichment. I'll be brief here. Proverbs 28, verse 3. A poor man that oppresseth the poor is like a sweeping rain which leaveth no food. Now it's interesting, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 3, Solomon identifies people who violate the law of God as those who have no sense of material justice in verse 3, no sense of moral justice in verse 4, and no sense of magisterial justice in verse 5. But in this Proverbs, verse 3, Two different words are rendered as poor. Notice you have two, the word poor shows up twice here. A poor man that oppresseth. The word poor there means needy. The second occurrence, that oppresseth the poor, means weak or impoverished. And the word man here refers to a strong man. The word oppresseth means to deceive, to defraud or exploit. So the picture here is describing a situation in which a needy but strong individual oppresses a weaker and an impoverished one for their own benefit. The situation is such that two people who are poor, people who are needy, people who are struggling, but because one has the power to exercise his authority over the other, he takes advantage of him. Solomon says, 
this, the illustration he gives us, he said, this impact on society is just like a devastating flash flood. You see, the phrase sweeping rain refers to the storms in the east, which passed through an area with such force that it would sometimes carry away flocks, crops, and even houses in the flood. We don't have time to get into this, but wealth and poverty throughout the book of Proverbs and Scripture gives a very different view of this topic than does the world. How one obtains their wealth has much to do with whether or not he or she would be blessed of the Lord. And this individual in verse 3 who takes advantage of others is not going to be blessed of God. We see it referred to again in verse 8. He that by usury and unjust gain increaseth his substance, he shall gather it for him that will pity the poor. You don't need to turn there, but Matthew chapter 18, our Lord illustrates this proverb beautifully by the parable of the two debtors. Verse 32 says, Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had on thee? See, self-enrichment. Amassing wealth, building up our riches, it ought to be done in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And the picture here is that if we go about gaining wealth through a a less than just means, it's it's going to be a problem down the road. Ability, power, or authority to take advantage of someone no way justifies one's decision to do so. We see corruption on every hand in our society today. But we have to step back and say, Lord, I'd like to get in on this, but I cannot do it as these unjust people. Lord, I'd ask that you'd bless me, that you'd provide for me. I'd ask that you'd meet my need and go beyond that. Yea, give me other things as well but God to do so in a just manner. Not cheating, not swindling, not stealing, not by conniving and working out backroom deals. No, the Bible makes it clear. The solution to this is to follow both the admonition and example of our Lord. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would do, ye would that men should do to you, Do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What do we call that? Golden rule. Paraphrasing it, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then our Lord's example, when he looked at the masses and said, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not looking at the masses for what he could get from them, but for what he could do for them, what he could offer them. Our conduct is seen in these three illustrations, self-indulgence, self-control, self-enrichment. Let me ask you this. Are people blessed or burdened 
by being with you? Does your conduct prove to be an encouragement to them or a challenge to them? Are you a blessing or are you a burden? I close with this short thought. A man in the army of Alexander the Great, who was also named Alexander, was accused of cowardly actions. One day he was brought before Alexander, who asked what his name was. The man replied softly, Alexander. Alexander the Great said, I can't hear you. The man again said, a little louder, Alexander. The process was repeated once and again. Finally, Alexander the Great commented, either change your name or change your conduct. For us as Christians, we name the name of Christ. We like being called children of God. But does our conduct match our name? If not, change your name or change your conduct. Do as the Lord would have us do.